Uh, well, good morning, everybody. I am glad that you are here. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving and a good Thanksgiving break. I know it was much needed in my house, and uh, the Lord was very kind to give it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be in three different texts this morning, uh, but we'll start in Isaiah chapter 11. If you just open to the middle of your Bible, you're pretty, you're pretty close. Well, if you see on the screen, it says the season of Advent. And uh, the first word for our kind of series on Advent this morning is hope. So we're going to talk about hope this morning, but I just want to say uh, I'm excited to be in the season of Advent. Historically, if you didn't know, um, the church or churches set aside four Sundays before Christmas, leading up to Christmas Day, to set their minds intentionally on the coming of the Lord. And we know that as Christians, Christ has already come and he's coming again. So we, in the season of Advent that we celebrate, we look back at how Jesus has come, putting on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to heaven. And then we look forward to his coming again to make all things right. That's where we are today and that's where we'll be for the next few weeks. So the big idea this morning though is hope. When we look around at our circumstances or the things going on in your life, even in a vacation week like Thanksgiving, we can be reminded that um, there are a lot of things to be distracted by. There are a lot of hardships to face. There are a lot of difficulties to try to persevere through or to overcome. And it's easy in all of the busyness of life and all of the attractions of the world to get off track to get a skewed perspective on reality and perhaps even to miss what's most important. So what I need and what you need is something or someone that we can trust, that we can bank on, that we can put our hope in, something that won't fail us when the people or circumstances around us inevitably let us down. We need someone who can hold us in his hands and remain faithful through it all. And Christmas season fills us with hope because we remember that Jesus came. He came as the fulfillment of the hopes of those before us. So that's why we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 11, to see the hopes of Israel as they look forward to the promised one who would come from David and bring about justice and peace to the whole world. And we know because of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit that Jesus did come. So we'll be looking at John chapter 1 here in just a little bit. And we celebrate because we know the hope of the world. God the Son put on flesh to dwell among us so that we might know him. And so we're going to learn some Christology together this morning. That'll be fun. But we also know that he is yet to return, right? He's ruling and reigning right now in heaven, but he is physically absent from us. So we join with the people of God still living in a sin-sick, broken world, hoping, longing, for the coming return of Jesus, who will finally bring all things into his new creation. So we'll be in James chapter 5 in just a little bit to look at that. So let's read Isaiah chapter 11. We'll read the first 10 verses, and then we'll, we'll dive in together, okay? Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we're grateful that we get to gather together once again this morning on our Lord's day. Open up your word and hear from you. And Lord, I pray that as we enter into this season of Advent, as we're putting our minds forward on your coming return and putting our minds backward to the truth that you have already come to make things new, to make things right. You were the firstborn of the new creation. Lord, we pray that you might help us to understand who you are rightly so that we might put our hope in what is true and what is right and what is good. And that is none other than the Lord Jesus. So Lord, give me the words to say as we think about your word this morning, help us to love you, to know you, to follow you in faithfulness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're thinking about the kind of the plan that I gave you a couple of minutes ago, we need to start in the past. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing we need to think about is is this. We remember the hope of those before us. So one of the reasons why we have the season of Advent is to remember, right? We remember, and specifically as we read the Old Testament, we read it rightly when we remember their longing for the coming Messiah, their hope for things to be made right. Isaiah's day was filled with unbelief and rebellion and instability and sin. And so by the time Isaiah was a prophet in Judah, David's royal line, the line of kings of the people of Israel, It was filled with idolaters. It was filled with people who did not follow or obey the word of the Lord. And those who trusted in the Lord, those who remained steadfast and faithful in the midst of a kingdom led by a wicked king filled with unbelief and rebellion, those who trusted the Lord knew bad kings lead to bad situations. It leads to instability. It leads to brokenness. It ultimately leads to exile. So Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 11 is a clear reminder to those who love God and hope in him that their hope is not in vain. As they look around at their kingdom, as they look around at Israel and see all of the brokenness, all of the false worship, all of the idolatry, their continued hope in God is not meaningless. A shoot, Isaiah says, will come from the stump of Jesse. So you think about literally a stump, like a tree has been cut down. It's dead. And out of that seemingly dead thing, new life is going to be born. 
Life will come from something that seems dead and destroyed. And the spirit of God, Isaiah says, shall rest upon him. The one to come will have wisdom and understanding, good counsel. He'll have might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Everything a good king ought to have. Everything a king of God's people should have, he will have from the spirit himself. And his delight, Isaiah says, look at verse three, his delight, his joy will be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, you can put your hope in this one to come who will find his joy, not in riches, not in land, not in conquest, not in notoriety, but in fearing God. This king will find his true satisfaction and purpose in loving God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength. Now, up until verse 3, we as Christians in 2022 can tell that these things are true of the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry. His first coming was through the line of David. He was filled with the Spirit. He was, the Spirit came to him at his baptism. He was full of love and obedience to the Father. But Isaiah continues and he speaks of things that have not yet happened for us, right? So verses 3 and 4 talk about judgment and righteousness that lead to an everlasting, almost bizarre scene of peace, starting in verse six, right? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. This king is going to bring peace, but he will bring it through judgment. And the the ability that this king has for judgment and peace is in his very word, right? Look at verse four in the middle. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So his very words, this king to come will have the power in his word to bring life or death, judgment and peace. In other words, Isaiah is cluing us in even now, hundreds of years before the Messiah was to come. This one to come is more than a man. This one to come is more than a human who just rules well. This is a person who speaks and life happens. And the only one we know who does that is God. And peace comes. When he comes, peace comes. Predators and prey will be lying down next to each other. It will be a place where children and infants, the most vulnerable humans on the planet, will have no threats of harm to them. No fears. I think about this with a two-year-old. Um, like we're constantly kind of low grade afraid, right? Like, like even today, like, sorry, buddy, but he stuck his finger in your can uh, earlier. Uh, we stopped him, but like, he didn't know. He's like, oh, hey, metal can. I wonder what's in there. Like, you're like, bro, you could slice your finger open. You know, there's like this constant low grade concern for small children and infants that they can just like, I don't know, topple over and break open, you know, like that. Anything around them is a potential danger. Anything around them is a threat. Not to mention real threats like cobras and adders, right? Like babies playing with snakes. It's not like the Disney Hercules movie. Like this is like real, you know? And yet this king is going to bring about a kind of peace where there will be no threat of harm and nothing to fear. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. All will know him. We spend time in this text to say that for those who fear the Lord, 
who love him, who trust in Christ, there was much to hope for. And we join in their hoping because not all of these things have come to pass, right? We still live in a world full of fear. We still live in a world full of threat. But can you imagine for a moment the truth of verse 9? This just struck me this week. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just stop for a moment and think. There is coming a day when it will be impossible to hurt. And there's coming a day where it will be impossible to be hurt. That's not just a physical reality. There's coming a day where my heart will never feel broken. There's coming a day where my mind will never feel uneasy or anxious or sorrowful or shamed. There's there's coming a day where I will never hear harsh words again. There's coming a day where I won't be able to be misunderstood. They shall not hurt or destroy. And there's coming a day when the earth, the whole earth, meaning all of creation here, will be as full of the knowledge of God as water covers the sea. The waters are the sea. So there's nothing but knowledge of God. We should feel their longing here and see that we can join Israel, those who loved and feared the Lord, We can join them in longing for the Messiah's advent, for his coming. But we get to celebrate that he's already come. So flip with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Some things have already happened in this prophecy. Some things have not yet happened. But we get to join kind of right there in the middle, enjoying some of the fulfillments of Christ and still longing for future fulfillments. But we see our reasons for celebrating in John chapter 1. So you should be there, starting in verse 1. I still hear a lot of pages, so we'll just hang on for a second. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So second truth for us this morning, we celebrate that hope has come in Christ. 
we celebrate that hope has come in Christ. John chapter 1 clues us in even more clearly to what Isaiah was hinting at 700 years before. And that is this one to come, this Messiah, this anointed one is none other than God himself. The one who can speak and life and death happens, peace comes when he comes, that's God. And yet he is from David. He put on flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. Jesus really is the one that Isaiah and Israel put their hope in. He really is the the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, and he's both God and man. So we get to rejoice in hope because God the Son has come, truly God. And we get to rejoice in hope that Jesus has come just like us, truly human. It's vital that we try to wrap our minds and hearts around the mysterious truth of who and what the Lord Jesus is. Because if I'm going to put my hope, if you're going to put your hope in Jesus, then we want to be as clear as we possibly can that the Jesus we hope in is the Jesus of the scriptures. Right? Like in the world, you say the word Jesus and a lot of people think a lot of different things. Some people think, oh, Jesus. Yeah, like the the guy that we celebrate who was born at Christmas. And that's like all they think. Or like, oh, Jesus, that really good teacher who, you know, a couple thousand years ago did some crazy things. And I think maybe died on the cross, but like, that's about it. Like, man, what a great guy. Yeah, I should model your life after him. There's all kinds of things that people think when they think about Jesus. But as Christians, those who have the word of Christ, the one that the spirit of Christ inspired for us to have now and forevermore, we can truly rejoice. We can truly put our hope in him because he's revealed himself to us. And we confess that he is both God and man. Because he is God, he is perfect. He's faithful. He's omnipotent. He is able to save us from our sin. But because he is man, he is like us, able to be our substitute, able to stand in our place, able to be a model for us and an example for us. Now, I want to teach you some ideas that hopefully you can hold on to and take with you for the rest of your life. This will be kind of like drinking out of a fire hose for the next few minutes, and that's okay. Some of you have heard before uh, these words, and some of you might not have heard all of them, maybe even any of them. But just like when you learn a new sport or a new hobby or something that interests you, one of the first things you learn is the grammar of that thing. Right? So one of the trivia questions from a couple of weeks ago is, what is the term for a score of zero in tennis? And you, I think all of you got this one right. The answer is love. Right? So if, if I were watching a tennis match and I said, somebody asked me, what's the score? And I said, oh, it's zero, zero. They would be like, well, you must not watch tennis. Because if you watch tennis, you would know the grammar. You would know the words that we use to communicate what we're talking about. And if you and I don't know the grammar of our faith, then we will wander off into imprecision and confusion and, God forbid, error. So we need to have a little bit of a grammar lesson this morning. Why can we celebrate that the hope has come in Christ? Let's give you some words to know. So first word, and you can hopefully jot these down really quickly and carry them with you for the rest of your life for all of eternity, because we'll probably be talking about these things for billions of years. Okay. First is Christology. This is kind of an easy one. 
Christology, that's the study of Christ or the the word about Christ. So when we talk about Christology, we're talking about Christ. And specifically, we're asking two kind of questions and ideas. We're either talking about the person of Christ. So who is he? How do we understand him? And we talk about the work of Christ. What did he do, right? So today, we're, we're talking some about his work, but we're talking mostly right now about his person. Who is he, right? Second word, incarnation, incarnation. This is John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it's kind of weird to say, literally incarnate, in meat or in flesh, right? So the incarnation is the event where the son of God took on humanity. When he became a human by the spirit of God in Mary's womb, the incarnation took place. And we celebrate that at Christmas time when he is born, right? So we need to know the incarnation. Next word is nature, nature. Now this is not like stuff out there, okay? By nature, I mean the essence of what something is, okay? So everything has a nature. So that chair right there has chairness, right? Like you can look at that and say, I can ask, what is that? You would say, it's a chair, right? But there's other kinds of chairs in this room. They're all the same in this room, but over there, uh, you could have a chair made out of wood. You could have a chair made out of metal. You could have a chair made out of plastic. You'd have a red chair. You could have a blue chair. You could have a white chair. You could have a multicolored chair. You have a big chair, a small chair, but all of us can look at them and say, chair, same thing with trees, right? Like you look outside and he's like, what's that? It's a tree. How do you know? Because of the way that it is. Like it's a tree, right? So a nature is something that is appropriate to what that thing is. God has a divine nature. What is God? He's divine. Humans have a human nature. What is, what is Aaron? Human, Okay. So we need to understand nature, nature. These are, this, this is the, the essence of what something is that gives it capacities and powers, okay? So do I have the power to convert sunlight into energy? No, because I'm not a plant, right? You look outside and look at the trees and the bushes and you're like, oh, okay, photosynthesis. They can take sunlight, convert it to energy. But can they write, can trees write poems? no. Why? Because they don't have the capacity to reason or hands that can hold pens, right? Because they're not human, right? So our nature gives us powers and capacities to do things in the world. Does that make sense? That's kind of, we're getting a little academic here, but I promise it's helpful. When we're talking about nature, we're asking the question, what? Okay, so when I say, what kind of nature is it? I'm asking, what is that thing? All right. The next word though is person. Person. When I'm asking about a person, I'm not asking about what, I'm asking about who. So when I ask the question, what is Jesus? I can say, he is both God and man. But when I ask the question, who is Jesus? I can say, Oh, he's the son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, right? 
the nature question, the what question, talks about essence or substance or nature. The person question is asking about this particular person, this agent, this one that I can have a relationship with. So Jesus is one person, which leads to the last fun vocab word. It's actually two words. You ready? Hypostatic union. There you go. Josh is raising the roof because this is a good one. Hypostatic union. So go with me here. Use your, use your mental imagination. I have one person, Jesus Christ, the son of God, born of a Virgin Mary, who is both fully human by his human nature and fully God by his divine nature. And the fact that he has two natures, human and divine, is the truth of what's called this hypostatic union. These two natures come together. They unite in something completely unique in all of creation. Does anything else have two natures? No. Does does God the Father have two natures? No. Does any volcano or tree or cloud or person other than Jesus in the world have two natures? No. This is unique to Christianity. This is unique to Jesus. He has a human nature and a divine nature. And the hypostatic union is these two natures coming together for this one person, all right? So remember, if nature is about capacities and powers, then he, that is Jesus, has the capacities and powers of both God and man. So let me give you an example of why this is helpful. Why does Jesus ask questions? If he's God, he knows everything. He has omniscience. He has all knowledge. So why does he ask any question? Well, not because he doesn't know, but because he's a human. And because of his human nature, he has the capacity and powers to learn and to grow in his knowledge. And so he asks a real question wanting real knowledge that will grow his real human nature, his real human mind, his real human capacities and powers to know. But then when he says like, oh, I don't know, he's sleeping on a boat because there's a great storm and he wakes up and says, will you be still? And everything stops. Okay, humans don't do that, right? And there's a difference between Jesus saying, uh, Lord God, please uh, let the storm pass from us and grow. No, 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 no. He speaks as one with authority. So he's speaking out of the capacities and powers of his divine nature. All right. So if we understand he has both a divine and a human nature, this is going to make a ton of sense when you read about Jesus in the Bible, because you'll see things that he does and you're like, oh, that makes total sense because he's a human just like you and me. But then you'll read other things and you'll go, oh, that makes total sense because he's God. So the hypostatic union is vital to understand. And we mess this up all the time. So I'm going to put another thing on the screen. I promise this is going to be the end of the, the, the lecture series. Uh, but um, there was this really famous meeting in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon. So you have that on the screen. It should be Chalcedon or Chalcedon if you're fancy. 451. And they talk about the hypostatic union and they give us four things to think about. And again, you don't need to understand all of the complexities of what I'm about to say to understand the truth of what I'm saying, right? 
Like, I don't have to tell my son, hey, son, don't run into the street. And he's like, why? Like, you don't need to really know why at this moment for you to obey what I'm telling you, right? Because I know that if you run in the street, you get hurt because there are giant metal things moving at very fast speeds and you would lose 10 out of 10 times. You don't have the capacity to think through like, oh, I think I could dodge it. I think I could get out of the way. No, just, uh, just listen to what I'm saying. Don't do it, right? So again, you don't have to understand all of the complexities of what I'm about to say, but we do need to receive the truth. Our faith is a received faith. And guys, 1,600 years ago, got this right, and we've believed this ever since. So four things that they say about the hypostatic union, these two natures coming together. First, it is without confusion. Without confusion. What that means is we didn't get like, don't think of natures like colors. It's not like Jesus had a divine nature, blue, and a human nature, yellow, and now the hypostatic union is green. We didn't mix them together to get a third thing. No, they are without confusion. They are without mixture. They are fully a human nature, not threatened by or changed by a divine nature, and a fully divine nature, not threatened by or changed by a human nature. Make sense? So without confusion. Number two, without change. Without change. This connects to without confusion. These two natures do not change or transform or cause the Son of God to change or transform in any kind of real substantive way when he takes on humanity without change. This did not change the Son when he added humanity. Number three, without division. Without division. So don't think about these natures as buckets. And Jesus has to say, well, I'm going to pour 50% of my person into this one and 50% of my person into this one and become kind of like this split personality kind of thing. No, it's without division. There's no division in the person of Jesus. And then number four, without separation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man will be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man now and forever. Once these two things have come together in the one person, they will never be separated. He will always be who he is. He will not change. All right, end of the academic lesson. The grammar is done. Our hope is not in grammar. Our hope is in Christ. But the grammar for understanding who and what Christ is is so important for us to place our hope rightly. Because that Christ, that God-man, that resurrected king is coming again. So we continue to hope. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Last place, very quickly. We'll give you some time to think through this. I know that your brains are probably a little cramped after all of that. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. We've seen the hope of Isaiah and the people of God in the past. We celebrate that hope has come in Christ, one who is fully God and fully man. And then in James, we will see that we can live in hope that Christ is coming again. James chapter five, starting in verse seven. James writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So third thing this morning, we live in hope that Christ is coming again. We live in hope that Christ is coming again, that he will return. But the reality is, if we're honest, sometimes waiting is like the hardest thing to do. Like we want what we want and we want it now. And so waiting requires patience. It requires self-control and all sorts of spiritual fruit. And it's not wrong for us in some sense that if we want Jesus, if we want Jesus to come, then we want him to come right now to make all things right, to make the brokenness end, to make the sin stop, to make the darkness go away. And James knows this. And so he calls us to patience. He gives us lenses of faith through which we can view Jesus's current physical absence. Why has he tarried? James says, be patient. Be patient. He uses a farmer waiting for the rains to come. The farmer knows that the rains are coming. They've come every year since he can remember. The rains will come, but he's not sure when. So too, we know that Jesus will come because he's already come before. And he's promised to return. And we can trust that his word is good. We just don't know when. You see, we want to understand the whens and the whys and the hows of the work of God. And often he only gives us the what. Because we want to say, God, I want to take a look at your plan and make sure it's sound. I mean, we don't say this, but this is what we feel. I want to take a look at your plan, your timeline, and make sure it's sound. Because if it's not sound, then I might try to put my hope in something else or someone else. And I can't really put my whole hope and my whole trust into you unless you kind of show me how this is going to work. And that's not how God works. He doesn't have to show us any of his plans. He just says, be patient. Trust Look at my faithfulness up until this point. Why will I be faithless now? Why will I fall now? But in the meantime, as we wait, we have to fight against the temptation to lean into grumbling and complaining that we still live in this world with these people. Like kids in the back of the car during a long trip, time together sometimes leads to buttons being pressed and emotions running high. And James gives us the right context. Getting your hope off of Jesus and onto other things which lead us to grumble because we're not getting what we think we deserve right now is worthy of judgment. That grumbling and complaining is worthy of judgment. And James reminds us, and the judge is coming. He's standing at the door. James even references the prophets as examples of those who waited, who hoped, like Isaiah. And we look at their example positively. They waited and were faithful and we call them blessed. Or even Job, who waited through hardship and suffering and was absolutely peppered 
and crushed. These times of waiting on God, both in the smaller scale of waiting through a specific hardship today in your life, or the larger scale of waiting for the Lord to return. These things are not signs of God's carelessness or neglect, according to James. That's not how you and I should receive them. No, he says in verse 11, see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we hope in God, and specifically hope in the return of Christ, we are joining a long line of saints who have done the same, who have now seen the Lord and have said, worth it, worth the wait, worth the hardship, worth the suffering. So let's fix our eyes and our hope on the Lord Jesus as we celebrate his coming during this Advent season. Let's renew a real sense of longing for his return and a real confidence that his promise is sure because he has come and he is coming again. So we put our hope not in the circumstances of this world, but in the one who will judge it, in the one who will redeem it, in the one who will rule over it forever. For the knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters cover the sea, where we won't be able to hurt or destroy. That's our hope, because the King is coming. So let me pray, and we'll spend some time together in our groups thinking through these things.